Hey, it's Lucy Kang here. Thanks so much for listening to Making Contact. If you want to support our work all year long, please consider signing up to make a monthly donation. Just $5 a month will help fund our social justice reporting all year long. Now, here's the show. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact... I knew going back that I was like, I need to organize this place. That needs to happen. Because even though like I loved working there, but there were always like issues that I was like, ah, this could be dealt with better. And how can we make this happen? We follow reporter Jules Bradley as we visit a small coffee shop in Brunswick, Maine called Little Dog where the workers decided to unionize. And we talked to Robert Schlele, a labor researcher and organizer, about what we can learn from the rise of union organizing among young workers in the service sector. Think about young workers, they're entering an economy that has been for the last like 30 to 40 years, just been witnessing a race to the bottom in terms of wages, in terms of benefits. So, I think that all those things really added up to what we're seeing is what we could call like this huge upsurge in labor organizing among particularly young workers. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamrani, And on today's show, we wanted to take a look at the wave of union organizing that's been sweeping the nation in the last few years. And for that, we're starting in Maine, where our reporter, Jules Bradley, visits one of their favorite coffee shops. There's this coffee shop in downtown Brunswick, Maine. It's called Little Dog. I used to go there every once in a while because there's a violin shop right around the corner. I drive up to Brunswick from Portland to get a fiddle string fixed and sit in Little Dog for a few hours sipping coffee. Little Dog is a classic, cool, college town coffee shop. There are these huge windows that let in a ton of light, plenty of plants, local art on the walls, and a ton of students from Bowdoin College right down the road, reading Tolstoy and drinking endless lattes. Something else that's always stood out to me about Little Dog was the staff. They were friendly and welcoming, but in a way that wasn't just cookie-cutter customer service. It just seemed to me that they really cared about Little Dog. Ooh, am I going to get choked up when I'm talking about this? I love Little Dog because I know people's orders before they like walk in the door. Like I know that that person, they graduated college here. They just moved here. I know like so many people's stories. This is Jess Sarnecki. They started working at Little Dog in 2019, right after they moved to Maine. I'm best friends with like all the people I work with. My like whole life is at Little Dog, (laughs) but like in a happy way. While I could tell that the employees, like Jess, loved Little Dog, there were also all these things that I didn't know. This coffee shop, like many places I've worked before, had a lot of problems that customers couldn't see. The turnover rate at coffee shops is so high. I feel like I would train people, and then a month later they would leave, and I was like, okay, that was a waste of labor, but also, like, I don't blame you. High turnover and low pay made working at Little Dog difficult. But the real kicker came just a few months into Jess working at the shop. So back up to when I first was working at Little Dog, like my beginning Little Dog era, um, we had a period of time where 
We hadn't been paid for over two weeks. So very illegal, not good. It should be fairly easy for the owner of a business to get people paid on time. Problems like this often push employees to quit. But quitting comes with so many struggles of its own. So instead, Jess had another idea. What if we like had like a strike? Like what if we just walked out? So that was my first ever like organizing anything. That night that we knew we weren't getting paid, like the correct day, I was like, okay, let's close up shop right now. And we'll send our owner an email and we'll say that we're not going to open tomorrow unless we get paid tonight. Like, because this is, I don't want to do that. And this is exactly what today's story is about. What happens when workers decide to not take that bull any longer? It's a story about a small shop in a small town. But really, it's about the shift amongst workers across the country, especially younger ones, who are no longer standing for poor labor conditions and practices and are fighting for something much better. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? The walkout gave Jess a taste of what workplace solidarity is like. They started thinking about what further organizing could mean for Little Dog. But this was early 2020. We begin with where we stand today. This is a track of cases just this week. There are now more than 14,000 reported cases in the U.S., nearly quadruple the total on Monday. Here is what we know right now. The mayor here in New York City is warning that a shelter-in-place order could take hold in the next day or two because I am like immunocompromised. And I knew I didn't want to be working in the public because that just seemed like the scariest option. So Jess decided to leave Little Dog at the start of the pandemic. I didn't see um, many protections for people that were working in restaurants when that was seemingly like the biggest space where the public was interacting with workers. Jess wasn't the only one to feel this way. Workers were often forced to work without proper PPE, hazard pay, or sick leave. Something had to give. Big companies like Amazon, Starbucks, and Apple are facing union pushes really across the country. The union on Staten Island has clinched victory over Amazon in a New York election. That means that this would be the first... During the first years of the pandemic, workers began to push back against worsening conditions. And we saw this huge rise in union efforts across industries. Outrage over Starbucks store closure. The workers' union at the coffee giant claiming the company is illegally closing one of its recently unionized stores. While Jess was away from Little Dog, they watched workers have huge wins at companies like Amazon and Starbucks. In the summer of 2022, a Starbucks in Portland, Maine's biggest city, voted to unionize. I talked to some of my friends who had been working at the Portland Starbucks store, and I didn't know much about, like, the actual process of, like, okay, first you hand in a letter after you get people to sign cards. Then you have to send in your intent to, like, have a vote. Learning about the unionizing process, Jess felt that same excitement they had at the walkout back in 2019. But before Jess could start a union of their own, they needed a workplace to unionize. So they decided to go back to Little Dog. I just miss my friends and I wanted those people to have like better rights and to like know their rights more because I was hearing stories about how things have been since 
the new ownership took over. And I was like, yeah, I can't have that. It's ridiculous to me. So when Jess heard about that new ownership change in the summer of 2022 and the troubles that came with it, they saw an opportunity. I knew going back that I was like, I need to organize this place. That needs to happen. Because even though like I loved working there, but there were always like issues that I was like, ah, this could be dealt with better. And how can we make this happen? So I went back with the full intention of like, this is going to be a union shop. At this point, it's August of 2022. And Jess has come back to Little Dog with a full intention of starting a union. So I was like, okay, like I'm just going to be in the dish pit. I'm going to be hanging out, trying to meet people. But honestly, I would just like, be like, so capitalism really sucks, huh? Like I would just like say those things and hope someone would laugh. And then I would have a little bit of a conversation there and see if I could sway them to think differently. You're completely protected to talk about organizing on the job. So I am all for it. These whispers in the dish pit are the very first step to organizing. There's no way to know if your coworkers have the same complaints as you unless you talk about them. As Jess was talking to their coworkers about unions, Sophie, a Brunswick local and Little Dog customer, was looking for a new place to work. And I was like talking to the baristas and I had asked them like, oh, like, how do you guys like working here? And one of the baristas was like, so fun fact, did you actually know that we're organizing and we're unionizing? And I was like, no, but tell me more. <laughs> I have always dreamed of organizing. A lot of my background with organizing has come from the fact that like I grew up in a low income household and we grew up like in Brunswick. So like there was Bath Ironworks right down the road. And we would like see all like the union guys sort of like going and like being exposed to that really sort of helped me. The Bath Ironworks Union, or BIW, is one of Maine's largest and most influential unions. In a very rural state where most folks are working class, there's a lot of labor solidarity across the generations. I have like this very specific memory of riding in the passenger seat of my best friend's car and going down into West Bath and just like seeing the the BIW guys on picket lines like during like a contract year. That was definitely like, oh, like we should be supporting those guys. Like those guys like are frightened for like, you know, safe workspaces and like the ability to have like health insurance and to be paid more than, you know, dog Sophie started working at Little Dog and jumped right into organizing efforts with Jess and the other coworkers, some of whom were still in high school. They had just learned about labor movements in history class, and now they were starting a union before they could even vote. This is Kira, a high school senior. I've never been involved in anything like this. I've definitely learned about it in history. Um, my A-Push class last year, we had a whole unit on like the Gilded Age and stuff when unions first um, came to be about but I have never been involved in one. <laughs> now that they had quite a few coworkers on board, Jess got in touch with a rep from Workers United, the union representing most Starbucks shops. I got majority of folks to sign cards within like a month and a half. Like we handed in our union letter, like I think a month and a week after I had started working there again. I don't think that was something <laughs> the current owner expected at all. Their next step was declaring their intent to unionize to their boss in the hope that he'd voluntarily recognize the union. Since buying the shop in the summer, the new owner had been mostly absent. 
yeah, it was the 17th of September. We handed in our intent to unionize letter. We tried to be like, hold on, pause, but it was like a very busy day. And some people didn't get what was going on. We knew that if Larry was going to be in, we had to do that that day. So we handed him the letter. We have a video of us handing him the letter, actually. And he's not really talking. He looks very upset, like livid. And yeah, just kind of like discombobulated. Like, wow, wasn't expecting this. Jess is referring to Larry Flaherty, the new owner that took over Little Dog last summer. He owns the shop as a franchise called The Met with a few other coffee shops in Maine and New Hampshire. Under the new ownership, I was like, wow, the food has really gone downhill. Like everything used to be made from scratch and now it's not. People come in who have been going to Little Dog or like maybe they graduated from Bowdoin like five years ago and they come back and they're asking for something specific. And I'm like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Like I know that item. I used to make it. We don't have that anymore. And people will just be like genuinely like very upset about that. And let's be like, okay, bye. And I'm like, ah, that's awful. Let me tell you about our union efforts. I reached out to Larry and never got a response. However, he did talk to a few outlets last fall to express his confusion about the union process. He's quoted in the Bowdoin Orient as saying, I've always cared about my employees. I don't see why they need a union. I don't support nor not support the union. I just don't know enough about it and the rationale behind it. Since Larry didn't voluntarily recognize the union, the workers had to hold a vote. We thought our vote was going to be at the end of October, but me and my coworker, Lorenz, both got COVID. So we decided we were actually going to do a mail-in vote. The vote itself ended up being less of a climax than the workers imagined. They envisioned a midday walkout onto Main Street, yes votes called out on a megaphone, but nonetheless, the vote to unionize won, four to zero. There was a brief moment of joy and celebration, but really, the fight was just beginning. On Valentine's Day of this year, I went up to Little Dog to take part in a sip-in. This is an action that they learned from some of the Starbucks unions, where customers come into the shop and order their drinks using the name Union Strong. Anything else? That's all. What's your name? Jules and Union Strong. Yeah. It's a way for the workers to feel that community support. But this sip-in didn't just happen for some Valentine's Day fun. In the three months between when the little dog workers voted to unionize in November and Valentine's Day, life had been really hard. So during the actual voting, you hear people's names who voted yes. Like it was like Jessica Zarnecki voted yes. And then Kira and Vivian. So after that, I was being put on the schedule for like part time, but I was a full time person. And then Kira and Viv were not on the schedule for almost four weeks. I... Uh, I felt so bad for everyone because it was very frustrating and just like really killing morale. Good thing like we had the camaraderie there already, but I just felt like everyone was just being forced to suffer because we had won our union vote. Since November, the shop has been very understaffed. I've gone up on multiple occasions and found a note on the door saying that they're closed. And now, eight months into the bargaining process, the Little Dog Union still doesn't have a contract. 
And at the end of the day, we want to come to an agreement on a contract because that is what will make Little Dog run smoothly. They've set up bargaining meetings with the owner, Larry, that he hasn't always shown up to. And if he has, it's on Zoom and off camera. They can't share the current components of the contract publicly yet, since it's still in the bargaining process. Like, yes, workers' rights are important. I want to be paid more. We all want to get paid more. But also, we know how Little Dog can be run better, and he doesn't. He doesn't make coffee. He doesn't see the in and outs in the day-to-day, but we do. I would love to have a contract by summer. It'd be so nice. It'd be so simple. And Little Dog isn't alone. Bargaining is often the most difficult part of this process. Even the over 250 Starbucks shops that have been able to win union votes still don't have contracts. So on a Sunday at the beginning of May in 2023, fed up with the speed and progress of bargaining, the Little Dog workers went on strike. As of July 2023, the Little Dog Union still does not have a contract. In mid-June, they went back on strike and have remained on strike ever since. Every day during shop hours, the Little Dog Union and their supporters gather on the street outside the shop, fighting for their right to a safe and happy workplace. There's like a big misconception when it comes to labor organizing that like the only real labor is the labor that is like extensive and intensive. You know, steelworker unions and electrician unions and plumber unions, like those are essential jobs, but it's not the only labor that's out there. Being a barista, that's work. And there's like a lot of expertise that goes into it and like creativity um, that just doesn't go recognized by, I think the majority of like the general population's idea of labor. I'll be watching their fight, and you can too. Follow the union on Instagram, at Little Dog Workers Unite. This is Jules Bradley, reporting from Brunswick, Maine. You're listening to Making Contact, and instead of our usual break, I just wanted to jump in and let you know that if you wanted more information about today's show or to get more information about union organizing, you can visit us online at radioproject.org. Jules' piece, by the way, was produced midsummer. 2023, and we wanted to let the workers resolve some of their labor disputes before airing it. Unfortunately, the workers at Little Dog never received the contract, and instead, the owner closed the shop, and none of the original workers were rehired. But, technically the union that they formed still exists, and they've continued to help other workers learn to organize through that union name. So, sometimes an organizing fight isn't just about a win or a contract. It's about the power and the relationships built through the organizing, which individual workers can continue to draw from, regardless of whether they stay at their current job or not. The thing about union organizing is that even while it is a long, hard process to get in a contract, you already start experiencing a different workplace when you're building a union because you have that community. You have people who are already watching for each other's back. And so the ethos of the union really changes the workplace, too, because it gives you that sense of solidarity even before the contract's been done. That's Robert Schlele, 
an assistant professor of urban sociology at Cal State Long Beach, and a visiting researcher at the UCLA Labor Center, where he helps run the Cannabis Workers Collective. I reached out to Rob after listening to Jill's piece on the Little Dog Coffee Shop because it made me think about all the other unionization efforts I'd read about this year, and I was curious about what's going on. Why are we seeing the sudden rise in young, low-wage workers forming unions? Here's my interview with Rob. Robert, to start, you know, we've seen Amazon workers organizing, Starbucks and fast food workers workers organizing seemingly out of nowhere in industries that traditionally can be seen as unorganizable. Um, And I'm curious, what's driving the need for young people to form unions at this time, and especially the service industry? Yeah, absolutely. So... Think about young workers, they're entering an economy that has been for the last like 30 to 40 years, just been witnessing a race to the bottom in terms of wages, in terms of benefits. And much of it is like concentrated folks in things like the service sector, what we call like the information sector. It includes things like nonprofits. And what that means practically is that they're coming in earning relatively less than anybody in decades has. And they're facing conditions that are increasingly more difficult in terms of less flexible hours, more demands for their time, more demands around productivity. And, you know, we were headed down this cliff for a long time and the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated it to some extent because not only on the flip side did it change what was happening in the workplace, but it also changed like the reality of what that paycheck adds up to around inflation. Now on the working conditions part, what COVID-19 did is exposed young workers, especially those working in the service sector, to basically the risk of premature death, to literally having to show up at work, be exposed to COVID-19 and with less protections than most folks and with no ability to work remotely and with the same stagnant wages, the same difficult and dangerous conditions. Workers have just seen that they're not really respected and that their lives are basically worth less and less to their employers, though their labor is just as valuable and just as exploited. So I think that all those things really added up to what we're seeing is what we could call like this huge upsurge in labor organizing among particularly young workers. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that young folks are entering the economy with some of the lowest wages that we've seen in decades. When did the decimation of the gains made by the old labor movement start to crumble? Why are we in this position now? So everywhere from between the 1930s into like the 1970s in the United States, we had this huge labor transformation in which we saw the shoring up of labor provisions, the real end to child labor, all these major shifts that built a solid foundation for what middle-class jobs could look like that were protected. And that was brought all really solely through organizing, union organizing, racial justice organizing, all kinds of work that was happening at the time, coalitional work. And that built into and like dovetailed with the civil rights and Black and Latinx, Chicanox and yellow power movements. And frankly, I think what we're witnessing is a 30 to 40 year revenge or backlash against much of that. And it was a very purposeful revenge or backlash. You know, there was a group called the Mount Pelerin Society of like thinkers. There was the University of Chicago. All these institutions can be named. And all of them were talking about how do we undo this work to bring businesses to influence universities, for example, if the universities are leading to more organizing and leading to more radical movements. And that looked in many ways, including 
cutting off access to education, shifting from free tuition to, you know, these pay models, and then really working to eviscerate the power of unions. First with some anti-strike legislations and things like that that were to some extent present in the 1950s and 60s, but really were amplified under Ronald Reagan's regime, uh, what we could call neoliberalism. Really pushing this cultural shift, this focus on individualism and entrepreneurialism, eliminating welfare supports, all of the safety net that if you didn't have that like Fortis job, we're supporting you. We're all like really rooted out over 30 to 40 years in the United States. Yeah. And so I've been thinking a lot about the sometimes difficult work radical workers have to do within the unions themselves, because the old school unions aren't always progressive. So how have new workers asking for big changes in this new economy dealt with a sometimes regressive or at least cautious view of the unions themselves? Yeah, I think unions are interesting because we don't get to talk about them that much and how they work because there's been this after effort to erase them from history, basically. But they've actually had some really diverse forms since the 30s. So they'll have like their kind of bigger, what we could call social movement union models, which have the union itself and then its relationship to community organizations and see their their fight together as, as one within a larger context. And then there are more of the trade union models, which is can often be people around a particular trade like carpentry or electrical work, or that's actually how like the actors and writers guilds work. Yeah, either of those are organized can vary differently, right? Some of them can be really collective focus. Some of them can be super hierarchical and at different phases, what often happens is unions will get really successful, build up, and then they tend to, to lean back on the organizing and focus more on what is called member servicing. So making sure the members can get their benefits and things like that and become bureaucratized and stifled. And then they'll experience a new wave of organizing, shakes things up. And that's happened like multiple times. The most recent one before this was unions were really stagnating in the like 60s, the 70s and 80s. They were not willing to talk about things like race. They have kind of be, had to establish this, what we call a peace between themselves and bigger businesses. And all of that started to crash, you know, in those first decades of the Reagan era. And immigrant workers really revitalized unions at that time. They organized new collectives. They really pushed to include migrant workers at the center of conversations to fight this idea that they were unorganizable, to make sure that they were protecting undocumented workers. And that helped transform things like janitorial maintenance work. But like anything, you know bureaucracy settle in. And so you need to shake things up. And I think that's what we're witnessing now, right? The thing that's beneficial, and I think really different for me as somebody who also worked in the nonprofit industrial complex, is that unions have potential democratic measures built in, right? Whereas you work in a nonprofit, many of them don't have any, you can't vote your executive director out, can't really vote, period, on anything. And But unions do have this inherently democratic structure. So workers in like things like the United Auto Workers have been organizing across these different sectors to create and push for leadership change and successfully getting it, which has then shifted the priorities both at the bottom and the top and met that response, right? And this shakeup of the unions that Rob is talking about has electrified the labor world. We're seeing massive wins, not just in contracts, but also in strategy. For example, the Starbucks campaign. The workers there have shown their impact and built this amazing solidarity network of more than 200 shops in what felt like one of the more 
difficult or unreachable places to reach workers. And in doing so, I've like built a model, this small shop model that can link all of these different places. Unions have not often have sometimes shied away from places where you have to go shop by shop by shop in this small way instead of a big kind of central place to organize a bunch of folks. And they've showed it can be done. Despite the wins, however, there are some big challenges ahead. As we saw in the Little Dog story, voting to form a union is sometimes the easy part. Especially against the largest corporations like Starbucks and Amazon, how do you translate that into contract wins? Because these companies have so much money to burn on anti-union organizing, on illegal tactics that then get fined and then they pay like $8,000. So I think that points to the need to reform the actual labor laws and structures that um, get us from the vote to the actual contract. That was Robert Schlele, assistant professor of urban sociology at Cal State Long Beach and a visiting researcher at the UCLA Labor Center And that does it for today's show. If you'd like more information about today's program, please visit us online at radioproject.org or leave us a comment on our socials. Our Twitter is making underscore contact and on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.